really unusual thing. We've, we've done this one other time, so this is year number two, where we are taking six churches in Sovereign Grace who just feel stuck. They just, they are not doing well with mission, and they're like, hey, I need help. And so the, our church plant teams come alongside them, helping them, and then providing coaching for six months to help them move the, move the chains, move the ball forward. Um, so be praying for that this week. Also pray for my family. I've got nine kids, and so um, one's in college, so we only have eight. So uh, eight kids, so pray for my wife and children uh, as I will not be home this week. We've got some people that are going to be helping. Um, and I just want to point out, uh, well, I'm just thankful for you as a church. There are a couple people here today that are just such a gift to me that I want to point out. One is Tim Shorey right here. Tim uh, is Elliot's dad, and Tim is a pastor uh, at Risen Hope Church. He has been battling cancer, and we are just so grateful for you to be here. We stole the Risen Hope Church name from Tim. We thank you for letting us have Risen Hope South, and it is a joy to have you here, my friend. Enjoy to see you. And then Wendy Alexander's in the back. Wendy's one of our missionaries, um, and she serves SIM with... Uh, with really helping deploy. I was talking to her boss last week and just talking about how to help missionaries and serve missionaries as they prepare for the field. So preparing missionaries is as important as sending missionaries. So thank you, Wendy, for being here. It is a joy to see you. Last thing, I really will get to the sermon in a second. Uh, we have a facility work day this coming Saturday. We need help if you've got skills and facility type stuff, see uh, Samuel Johnson or Jimmy Gunther as well. We're trying to clear out the shell building. There's a lot of stuff in there. We need help clearing it out, putting it in a dumpster. If you have any kind of strength at all, we would love you to be here, I think 9 a.m. or 8 a.m. Who knows? Where's Jimmy? I don't even see him. I think he's in children's ministry. 9 a.m. on Saturday. We could use your help. Please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. In 2018, the University of Virginia men's basketball team was very good. They were ranked number one as a number one seed in the NCAA tournament, March Madness, and they looked to easily defeat number 16, UMBC. Does anybody know what UMBC stands for? There you go, University of Maryland, Baltimore, Baltimore County. I had no clue what that was. I had to look it up. At halftime, the score was 21-21. But in the second half, the UMBC Retrievers, good, good mascot, put up 53 points to UVA's 33 points, winning 74-54. to UMBC was ecstatic. Most brackets were busted, just like this year. And UVA was humiliated. That was 2018. In 2019, the University of Virginia had another really good regular season. They were again a number one seed in the NCAA draft. They went into the tournament, though, with a different humility and sobriety. The regular season does not matter at this point. Your number one seed does not matter at this point. What matters is playing in the game. Past success doesn't count. So they went in to play Gardner-Webb, number 16 seed, and they won this time. Then the number 9 seed, Oklahoma, and won. Then the number 12 seed, Oregon, and won. Then the number 3 seed, Purdue, and won to make it to the final four. Then they played 
Auburn, and then made it to the championship game against Texas Tech, and in overtime, the University of Virginia in 2019 became the NCAA men's basketball champions. 2018, embarrassment and defeat. 2019, victory and championship. Today, as we head into Joshua 8, Israel is coming off of 2018. Israel has just been extremely embarrassed and defeated. They just lost to the number 16 seed, AI, and Joshua is complaining. He's heartbroken. God broke his covenant, it seems, and he complains about AI. But we find out that Achan has coveted and stolen and devoted Uh, the devoted things like gold and silver and a robe from Jericho. And what we found out last week in Joshua 7 is that Joshua and Achan and Israel learned the seriousness of God doing, uh, of uh, doing God's will in God's way. God takes loyalty very seriously. In Joshua chapter 7, it ends with Achan and his family under a pile of rocks and burned. Another group of stones, stones of remembrance, Ebenezer's, and Joshua wondering what's going to happen next. So let's look at Joshua chapter 8. This is our text today, and we're just going to look at the first two verses as we begin. This is God's holy word. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, his land, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Our text reveals to us God's people are called to battle in God's way according to God's word. God's people are called to battle in God's way according to God's word. In chapter 7, there seems to be a bit of presumption coming off the victory over Jericho. They quickly move toward Ai. God doesn't seem to be consulted in the text. God doesn't seem to really be on the radar in their text. They send spies to go up to Ai. The spies basically say, hey, this is an easy win. We'll just send 3,000 troops instead of the thousands upon thousands we have. Let's just go send the 3,000 troops. This will be easy. Overconfidence, maybe. Complacency, some think. But there's a huge contrast between the two verses we just read in chapter 8 compared to anything you see in chapter 7. Joshua and God's people are to trust God's wisdom and not their own. Point number one is God's wisdom, trusting God's wisdom. Notice how Yahweh is the one to initiate this battle against Ai this time. Yahweh does not initiate the battle in chapter 7. Yahweh does initiate the battle in chapter 8. And Joshua is understandably afraid. It did not go well just a couple days ago. 36 of the troops, 36 of Joshua's troops, his men under on his watch are dead. So he is trembling a bit. And what are the words from God to Joshua? 
do not fear and do not be dismayed. Joshua, you are to be strong and courageous. But this time, Joshua, you're doing things my way. And note how quickly, friends, note how quickly grace and favor swoop in once sin is purged from the camp. There's no probationary period here. God's anger did not take a while to kind of simmer down. No, God is ready. He is eager. There is favor. Sin has been atoned for. Notice how quickly that happens from the end of chapter 7 to the beginning of chapter 8. Sometimes we don't think about God being eager for grace, eager in favor. Put away sin, eager. He's right there. We put probationary periods. Maybe we'll talk to God in a few days after he has a few days to, you know, you know, calm down from our sin and breaking relationship with him. That's not the Bible. And what is Yahweh's way? He says this, take all the fighting men with you. So you aren't just taking 3,000 men, you're taking all of them. And God assures Joshua that the king of Ai, the people of Ai, the city of Ai, the land of Ai, it's, it's transferring ownership here. Just as Israel did with Jericho, they're going to do with Ai. They're going to destroy them, except there's one change. And it's an interesting change right here. Verse 2, only its spoil, Ai spoil, and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. So God says, don't destroy the gold, silver, precious things. Don't destroy the livestock. Keep it. It's yours. Now, what's interesting about that? That's on the heels of what happened in chapter 7 with Achan. Achan sees. He covets. He takes. He hides. He sees. He covets. He takes. He hides. We saw that's the pattern of sin last week. But the whole time, God is going to provide in his timing. God is going to provide for his people in his timing. Achan, you could have had gold and silver and livestock, that robe. But Achan, you first must have God. Trust God, be loyal to God, have relationship with God. Oh, friends, what lessons we can learn here about trusting God's timing and God's provision. God is not against his people having some stuff. He's against his, his, the stuff having his people. Jesus said you cannot have two masters because you will hate the one, hate the one, and love the other. You cannot worship God and money. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. Joshua 8, verse 2, God lays out the battle plan. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Joshua is learning to trust God's wisdom, waiting for God's instruction, not presuming, trusting God's provision and God's plan. Friends, do we trust God's wisdom? Do we trust God's timing? Do we trust God's provision? Do we trust God's plan? Do we trust God's wisdom and timing right after we've sinned and repented, that his favor is right there to walk out obedience? 
Are we ready to walk out obedience right after we've repented of something? We know we broke relationship. We go to the cross. We repent. We know right there God's with us. His favor's there. Are we like, let's give it a few days. You know, once I come back into favor, once his anger simmers down, once God stops holding a grudge, friends, stop judging God. God is not like you. He does not hold grudges. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed is what he says to Joshua and what I think he would say to us in that moment. That's his wisdom. Be strong and courageous. Trust God's wisdom and not your own. For the Lord will fight for you. He is eager to pour out grace. We've seen over and over and over again in Joshua. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your loyalty. He's pursuing relationship, and he will fight for us. So let's see how this battle will actually look. Point number two, battling God's way. Battling God's way. I'm going to read a chunk of a passage right now, starting at verse 3 all the way to 23. This is how the battle is laid out, starting at verse 3 of Joshua 8. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. He commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say... They are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. Verse 9, so Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of the ambush and lay Um, and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua sent, sorry, spent the night among the people. Verse 10, Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, uh, and went up, he and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped to the north side of Ai with the ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment, that that was north of the city. Its rear guard was west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah and met Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all of Israel pretended to be beaten before him and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Verse 18. 
Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly into their place, or out of their place. As soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled in the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all of Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none uh, that survived or escaped, but the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. In verse 2, God gives instructions of how to take down Ai. He says this, lay an ambush against the city. 30,000 mighty men of valor set behind AI. And it's a bit unclear how it works with some of these numbers, but it seems like there's maybe another 5,000 in ambush to the west of the city. And Joshua's in the front, the north part of the city, and AI and its king are confident. They've already done this before. They've beat these guys once before. They saw them run. They ran about, we saw this last week, ran about three and a half miles of a sprint killing Israel, killing 36 of their men. Ai's like, we're going to do this again. So they leave the city, but this time not, not just part of the guards leave, not just part of the soldiers, but all of them leave and flee and flee after Israel to defeat them. I just imagine they're like, we are taking down Israel for good this time. We're going to defeat their God who dries up the Jordan, which they had heard about, I'm sure. But Joshua turns and he signals the 5,000 and then probably the 30,000. And before long, the city of Ai is burning. The troops of Ai have turned and realized they've been duped. They're surrounded and then defeated. God's plan of ambush worked. Now, friends, before we move on in the text, did you pick up on what God did here? Did you pick up on what God did? God used the failure of Israel. The sin of Achan, the death of 36 troops of Israel, the first defeat that Ai had against them, the fall of Israel to be the fall of Ai. God uses his people's failure and shame and melted hearts and running and defeat to humble them and then restore them. All of the men of Ai run after Israel, leave the city abandoned because this isn't the first time this happened. And God uses their very failure to bring about his redemption. In God's providence, he can recycle our worst moments to bring about his good purposes. Friends, that is good news. Romans 8, 28, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In God's providence, Israel fails, realizes the seriousness of their sin, their need for holiness. And at the same time, in God's providence, Ai becomes overconfident and they play into the hands of God for defeat. There's so many different strands of things going on that God uses here. It's amazing. And God does this today, friends. When we sin, when we are ashamed, when we are crushed, when our hearts are melted, we can be aware that God loves to redeem us in the midst of our worst moments. In the midst of our worst moments, it's not beyond the care and love of God. Are there consequences? Sure. But does God restore and renew his people all the time? Yes, he does. Now back to Joshua chapter 8. All the people are struck down except the king. Look at verse 24. And when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruin as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And the sunset, and at sunset Joshua commanded that they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised Uh, and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. So the city of Ai becomes a city devoted for destruction, just like Jericho. It is crushed and dedicated as an offering to the Lord, just like Jericho. The king is killed, just like Jericho. And friends, we've got to remember, Ai was a people who were rebellious against God. They participated in child sacrifices. They were morally corrupt in so many different ways. And judgment is what their sins deserved. And judgment is what was given, just like Jericho, just like Achan. And so in verse 29, we have another Ebenezer. We've seen so many of these in the book of Joshua. Another heap of stones, another group of stones of remembrance. We saw this with the Jordan River. They took out big stones out of the Jordan River, placed it on the shore in order to show uh, what had happened there that later, years later, people would ask, kids would ask, what happened, mom? What happened, dad? And they'd talk about the Jordan River. And then when the river went down, there was another heap of stones in the midst of the river. They'd say, wow, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. But it's not just heaps of stones for blessing and reminders of blessing. It's also heaps of stones to remember that God is faithful in judgment and justice. So last week we saw Achan and his family in a heap of stones because Achan had sinned, he had coveted, he had taken, he had stolen. He'd broken relationship with God. God is faithful to bless. God is faithful to bless. 
but God is also faithful to judge. He's faithful in justice. And that's what we have with the king of Ai here. More stones to teach the next generation. And parents, there is so much in Joshua about teaching the next generation. We must not just teach our kids that God's a God of love and blessing. He is a God of love and blessing, but he's not just a God of love and blessing. You read throughout scripture, he's a God of wrath and justice and judgment. If we don't have both of those understandings and our our kids don't understand both of those, they are not going to understand the cross. For why would Jesus have to go to the cross? Jesus goes to the cross because of wrath that you and I deserve. Jesus goes to the cross because of justice that had to be paid. Either you die, either your kids die, or we die. Or, I mean, or Jesus dies. Not we die. We're part of the kids in that. That's justice. So we've got to teach both. And these these mounds, these heaps and piles, these stones of remembrance are to teach the next generation about both the blessing and the justice of Yahweh. God is faithful. This is his battle. If we are not on God's side, we will receive the same judgment and justice. As we finish verses 3 through 29, we understand something. This is what should have happened in chapter 7. Like what we find in chapter 8 is what would have happened if Achan had not sinned. Ai would have been defeated. The spoil would have been taken that, that Ai tried to steal from Jericho anyway. And Yahweh would be praised. But like what we saw yesterday, sin splatters. Achan's sin splatters, our sin splatters. And friends, this teaches us Yahweh's good intentions and plan. His way is always best. And as we transition to the last part of chapter 8, we must remember that Joshua is the first leader of God's people with written instructions. He had the first five books of the Bible, which are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, good job. Often called the Torah Pentateuch. Good job, that was great. Torah Pentateuch, law. Like those are all summaries of that, good. So he was the first leader to have this and to have to follow this. He didn't have the tent of meeting that Moses had where he just goes in the tent, Shekinah glory going on, talk to Yahweh. He doesn't have that. So he must be a man of God's word and teach the people to be a people of God's word. So last point today is this, obeying God's word. Look at verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Aleb, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Aleb, 
just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So we find that Joshua builds an altar with specifications that honored God's word. And he wrote a copy of the law, the Ten Commandments most likely, on the stone showing the significance of God's word. And then he read all of God's word, which is most likely the Torah, the entire Torah, the first five books that we named a second ago. You know how long, at least in English, it takes to read the first five books of the Bible. According to Google, six hours and 32 minutes. If you read it, 300 words per minute, something like that. I'm probably slower than that. It took a long time. And they're set up there reading God's word to all of God's people. But what we might not pick up on in the text is they took a road trip. Did you know that? So from Ai to Mount Aleb is 20 miles. So they, they don't say all this in the text, but what happens is they finish in Ai and then they go to Mount Aleb. They, they travel a road trip. This entire nation travels 20 miles. Well, why would you travel 20 miles? You just like hiking a lot, jo- uh, Joshua, and we're just going to backpack together and have our little water bottles and, you know. Anyway, no, that's not what it was. Joshua is a man of God's word. And being a man of God's word, he knows they're supposed to do a road trip. Why are they supposed to go from Ai to Mount Aleb? It's not a random hike. Look what Deuteronomy 21, verse 1 through 8 says. This is Moses talking. It says this, Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole command that I command you today, And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up stones and and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write on them all the words of the law when you cross over and enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on what? Mount Aleb. And you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stone, and you shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stone, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law, what? Very plainly. Joshua was obeying the word. The people journeyed to Mount Aleb and Mount Gerizim. Now, here's what we may not get in our head if you don't know the geography here. Mount Aleb is here, Mount Gerizim is here, okay? And the people, half the tribes are over here and half are over here. And even the geography of what these mountains look like 
replicates what's going on with what they're saying with the law of the cursings and blessings. For Mount Elib was stony and a barren land. It represented the curses. This is where the altar is set up, where animals die instead of people. The, the bloodshed of animals is behalf, on behalf of the people. So that's, that's Elib over here. Then Gerizim is very different. Gerizim is a lush, fruitful, wooded mountain representing God's blessing. And friends, there's rejoicing as the people read God's word. But friends, why is there rejoicing? Yes, there's good food probably from the sacrifices. They're together. They beat AI. There's some good stuff there. But there's more going on here than we realize. Because where Elab and Gerizim are, there's a valley in between. It's a valley where the Ark of the Covenant is held by the priests. Does anybody know the name of that valley between Elab and Gerizim? Anybody? It's called Shechem. This is Shechem. Now, you might be like, that doesn't ring any bells to me, Mike. Shechem, okay, that's good. I've kind of heard it. It's been the Bible before. But this is Shechem. Now, get this. Genesis chapter 12. God goes to Abram. He is later called Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, at the beginning of Genesis 12, there are no Jews. Never in the history of the world is there ever a Jew until Genesis chapter 12. And God goes to Abram. Look at this. This will be on the screen. Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abram, go to, from your country and your kindred and your father's house, get this, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what I love about this passage, what I normally talk about this passage, is all the families of the earth are blessed through Abraham's line. That leads to Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's not what I'm dealing with right here. What we're dealing with in this text right now is that he says, to the land I will show you. A couple verses later, get this, it'll be on the screen. Genesis 12, verse 5. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the, their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, verse 7 there, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abram had never built an altar before. He travels in faith, in obedience to Yahweh, who he barely knew. He used to be a moon worshiper, most people think. Now he's trusting Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth. He's trusting him. He leaves his house and kindred. That didn't happen a lot that, at that time. You didn't have mobilization where you just move around. So he has this massive move, and he moves, and he goes to this place called Shechem, and he builds an altar in Shechem. And years later, Jacob, his grandson, would purchase some land and have sons and have a family in Shechem. And those sons would experience famine and 
leave Shechem and go to Egypt and be enslaved in Egypt and raise their families in Egypt as they're enslaved and then be delivered from Egypt and wander in the desert and now they're back in Shechem. That's why they're rejoicing. They're worshiping Yahweh. They're worshiping a God who is faithful and told their great-great-great-grandfather, this is the land that I'm going to give you. And how do they celebrate? How do they worship Yahweh in Shechem? By reading all of God's word to all of the people, recounting God's faithfulness. And just note how the author in Joshua chapter 8 goes out of his way for us, the readers, to know the importance of God's word to Joshua and his people. Verse 34, all the words of the law. Verse 34, all that is written. Verse 35, there is not a word that Joshua did not read. And who, who is there? Verse 35, all the assembly. All the assembly heard the word, men, women, and children, and sojourners. And they are there, everybody. And here's what we find, friends. All of God's people are to know all of God's word for all of life. All of God's people, friends, are to know all of God's word for all of life. Joshua was a man of God's word, and he is leading God's people to be men and women of God's word. They are a word-formed people. And why do they need to be a word-formed people? Because this is how you know God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. This is a God-breathed word to us. This is a God-breathed word to us. Luke 4.4, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, what does he do? He doesn't just like come up with things like pithy sayings. He quotes scripture. He quotes in Luke 4.4, and he says, man does not live by what? Bread, but by word. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. God's people, friends, are to be a word-nourished people. So friends, are you nourished? Or are you malnourished on God's word? What is your habit of Bible intake feeding on God's word to you? How is your joy in God's word, getting to know God? Friends, I've been a pastor for almost 22 years, and there's a massive difference when someone's in my office and I'm counseling them, someone who, who's sitting there and they cling to God's word and they're fighting for truth, maybe in suffering or sin or struggle, but they're clinging to God's word. That is massively different than someone who has no appetite for God's word. That counseling session is massively different. That discussion is massively different. This person has power to change because the word of God by his spirit helps change that person. And you see, like, I'm just sitting there like, I didn't do a whole lot. We just had like a couple meetings and, and they're like rolling because God's word and this person's struggling and struggling and struggling and struggling and struggling because they are malnourished. They have no power to change. Psychotherapy can help give some tools. The therapeutic can give us little tools to help here or there for like dealing with your past or dealing with emotions or something like that. But it has no power 
The Word has the power. The Spirit illumines the Word to us. Friends, it's not just brute effort. It's Spirit-filled effort in God. He began the good work. He began the good work. He will be faithful. So we're not just self-reliant people, self-taught people, self-motivation people, self-esteem people. We don't just curve in on ourselves. No, we look outward to the Word to tell us who we are. Friends, we need God's perspective. And God's Word by God's Spirit actually changes us. Friends, God's Word by His Spirit actually changes us. God's Word gives us hope in trials, strength in suffering, vision for the future. God's Word helps us not expect too much from this life. Life is heavy. It's a mist here today, gone tomorrow. But not to expect too little from this life, that I may know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. Our King is a crucified King. I want nothing in life but that. So I have joy in that. God's word heals marriages, teaching husbands to love their wives, lay down their life for his wife, teaching wives to show godly respect and intelligence, submission, submission to the husband. God's word changes marriages. God's word changes how we think about others. Love one another, how you love your kids, how you love your neighbor, how you love your classmates, how you love your enemies. How you love difficult people. How you learn to not be that difficult person. God's word tells us to not be anxious for anything. Rest in Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God. God's word tells sinners to flee sin, run to Christ. But it says when you sin, you have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. He's right there for you. Run from sin, but when you sin... It's realistic. God's word is everything to God's people. It is the very words of our God. It is how we know what he says. It's how we know how to have a relationship with him. It is how we know how to pray. It is our nourishment, friends. It is our bread. And friends, if that's the verse that Jesus uses after 40 days of fasting and Satan's coming at him, He's tempting him to make stones into bread. I mean, he's hungry. Like, you know, like when you're hungry, like you missed a meal and you're like, oh, I'm hungry. My kids are saying, I'm starving. Right? Little kids do that a lot. Like he actually is really hungry. But he said, I don't live on that. I don't live on bread. I live on word. I live on word. Friends, do we live on the word? Robbie, if you'll come on up said this at the beginning, God's people are called to battle in God's way according to God's word. We see this with battling AI and the ambush. We see this what happens after AI. The people don't rush to the next battle, right? We see this over and over in Joshua. God's not about the efficiency here, right? We see this over and over. Right after they cross Jordan, you're like, let's go take down Jericho. Let's go. We got momentum. We've got like adrenaline pumping. He's like, nope, circumcision, Passover meal. Like, let's just, we're going to get our hearts right. 
AI happens. Let's, we got momentum. We just beat AI this time. Nope, we're going to take a 20-mile journey and do some sacrifices and praise God and read for seven hours. Friends, we're called to go at God's pace. We're called to remember God. We're called to recount his faithfulness, to worship him, and to rejoice in him. And the only way you can rejoice in God is if you know his word. The only way you can recount who he is and find yourself in that story, in this story, because we are in the middle of this, is to sit under God's word, to be God's people, to be in God's place, under God's rule and authority. And that's what we see in the promised land. They are God's people in God's place under God's rule and authority, and this is what they were meant for. And this is what we are meant for, to be in his kingdom, rejoicing in the word of our king. We are to be a word-formed people in right relationship with God, trusting God, believing God, set apart for God. And friends, that's one of the things we try to do week in, week out here at Risen Hope. We're not trying to flatter. We don't have smoke and fog machines. We're not turning the lights down. This is real life. You know what? For some of us, life really stunk this past week. And what do you need? You don't need me to stir you up. You don't need an emotional energy boost. You need word. You need nourishment, not flattery. Right? So we need the word each and every week. Why? We have the world, the flesh, and the devil coming against us each and every week. So we need to be a people of the word. And I would just say, not just Sundays. That's why we have community groups and D groups. That's why I'd encourage you daily to be in God's word. Be nourished. This morning I went and looked at my journals. I have a list of journals from when I got saved. I didn't even know this till this morning. Because I was like, when did I first ever do a quiet time? Like, when did I do devotions? June 5th, 1998. I opened up my journal and looked what I prayed for. It's like about like five lines. I was 19 years old or something like that. I'd been saved for 11 months at that point. And someone taught me to do a quiet time prayed for my family, for their house to sell. I guess they were selling a house. I don't even remember. I prayed for something else. I prayed for these little boys because I was working at a camp to come to know Jesus. And I looked the next page and two kids came to know Jesus. I forgot about that. I'm like praying for Patrick and somebody else that came to know Jesus. The first week I was ever doing a devotion time. And I was like, look at God. He's doing things as his people are in his word. I was an 18-year-old who knew nothing except how to share the gospel. I didn't know where Shechem was. I didn't even never heard of Shechem. I'd never read Joshua. I didn't know any of this stuff. And mo- some of us don't know. And we're like, where do we start? Here's where you start. Open the Bible. Get a journal. Write some things. Look at some scripture. Look at the context of the scripture. Apply it to your word. Pray and get somebody that's older and wiser than you to walk alongside you. Friends, if you don't know how to study God's word, we want to help. We want to help. Come to me. I can connect you with somebody else. Friends, we need to be nourished. So we're going to end this way today, just being nourished. And so, Robbie, if you'll start playing, we're just going to take some time to pray. You can just pray right there before the Lord. And if, if God's put a passage of scripture on your heart 
as we've been teaching or singing today, you can come up to Josh right here, and we're just going to, this isn't prophetic ministry time, this is just word. So if you have a scripture that God's put on your heart, we're just going to read the word over each other for a few minutes. So let's take some time and hear God's word. We're just going to listen to God's word. So if you have that on your heart, you can come up to Josh, talk to him, and we're just going to hear God's word for a few minutes. I'd encourage you to open up God's word and read some things, maybe a passage, maybe a psalm or a proverb or somewhere in the gospel, something that just like, man, spoke to you this morning or speaks to you regularly. We just want, to, want the, the word of God to wash over us now as we want to be a word nourished people. Spend some time praying and reading.